Well, it's good to see you all this morning, uh, Palm Sunday, beautiful, absolutely beautiful spring day. It's Jesus' entry into uh, the city of Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the, the promise was that a king uh, would, be, would return and would uh, reinstate the kingdom of God on earth among his people. Now, the... Um, The interesting thing about it is that when Jesus appeared and did make his way into Jerusalem, he rode into the city on the back of a donkey. He did not come with an army, nor was he riding uh, a war horse, a horse of conquest. But instead, he took uh, a donkey and he rode on the donkey, which was a sign dating back to the Old Testament prophets that the king would come meek and lowly, riding on the back of a donkey, which was a signal to the people that he came in peace, not in conquest. He came to restore, not to conquer or destroy. And so these truths need to be uh, uh, really part of the, the... the fabric of our understanding of who we are as Christians. Now, we're in this book of Esther, and you might think, how in the world does Esther have anything to do with Palm Sunday? And I'm going to do my magic, and you'll see. Because I really believe that as we read our Bibles, if we start to get an idea of how the Bible is structured, it is telling us a story of redemption that begins in the garden with one question. Where are you? That question, where are you, was God's signal to all humanity for all time, all space, all eternity, that he would no longer deal with us in any other way than through grace and love. Remember, he did not say, I see you. He said, Where are you? And those gracious words of love reverberate through the scriptures right to the very end to chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. So if you have your scriptures, open them up to um, Esther chapter 7. And I'm going to read, it's just 10 verses, and I'm going to read the entire chapter real quickly. So it's in your bulletin printed, or if you have a Bible with you, you can look at it there. Now hear God's word, and then I'll bring, I'll bring the, the pieces of this together. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If if we had been sold merely as slaves, 
I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? And who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace garden. And Haman stayed to beg for his life, from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned to the palace garden, to the place where they were drinking wine. And as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my house? And the word left the mouth of the king. They covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king was abated. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so real quickly, if you're not familiar with the book of Esther, it's a very short book, 10 chapters. You can read it in about 20 minutes, the whole book. And it's about the exiled community of Jews in the land of Persia, which is today Iran. And In this Persian empire, there were some of the greatest kings that have ever lived. Wealth that almost cannot be compared even to today and some of the the amount of money and silver and gold that these kings amassed was legendary. The scope of their empire, there has never been a larger empire on earth than the the Persian empire of Cyrus, Darius, uh, Ahasuerus, the son of Darius, and Artaxerxes, the second son, or the son of after Ahasuerus. A massive kingdom. And the Jews that were in exile there are trying to figure out how do we live our lives in the absence, the total, complete absence of God. And the book is written exactly for that purpose. It was written with a bit of satire, a bit of humor, lots of irony. But the the writers were saying, here's what happens when you live in the middle of, of nowhere. God is nowhere around and he's not even mentioned in this book. The coincidences that are piled upon one another are not even mentioned. Nothing, no, no prayers are offered. There's nothing about God in this book. Now, the people reading this book would have known God is present. They're like us. They were believers. And they said, yeah, God is present. But he's absent in the book to tell us that this may be what our life looks like. Now, I know we all like the bells and whistles and we want to see miracles. And and so what we do about miracles is we lower the bar of miracles and we start calling 
everything a miracle. We pray for a parking spot at the mall or somewhere. And you get the parking spot you want. Oh, it's a miracle, you know. Or you have a baby. It was a miracle. You know, on and on it goes. We, we, and each time we do that, we lower the bar. But the miracles in Scripture are, they're like out there. There's no denying that something supernatural occurred. But they only occur, occurred a few times, five episodic miraculous times in over 1,800 years. Just five times. And each time they only lasted for a few years. So what happens in that other block of time up until today? What is God saying? He's going to operate in your life, in my life, by the normal means of providence, just everyday life. Yes, we're to pray. Yes, we're to look for God in those things. But we're also to recognize that he delights in living with us. Listen to this. In the mundane, the ordinary, you drinking a cup of coffee and reading your Bible in the morning or, um, or, or, or watching your kids at a, at a soccer game or getting on the TV and watching the Cowboys lose. I mean, whatever you enjoy. You know, God is there and he is close. And when we go off the tracks, when we get really sideways with God and we pull away from Him or shake our fist in His face, He comes in closer. He does not abandon His people. And that's what this book is about. In the book you see reversal after reversal after reversal. And it is a conflict between Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, she becomes queen in a great reversal. The book is full of these reversals, what scholars call peripety. And uh, liter literary authors have used the, this technique for years, you know, with these dramatic reversals uh, of fate or fortune. And so we see all of that. And we see that Queen Esther was asked in chapter 4 to an edict made by this wicked Haman, this man who was a, a descendant of the Amalekites, which were the ancient enemies of the Jews, going back to Moses. And God had said, I'm going to wipe them out. And the kings of Israel did not wipe them out like they were supposed to. And so they persisted in their affliction of the Jewish people. And this is why this man Mordecai, this Jew, would not bow down to Haman. Even though he became prime minister, uh, Haman, uh, Mordecai refused to bow. It, it enraged Haman, and so Haman plotted to have not only Mordecai killed, but the entire people of the Jews, all of them, a genocide. And so in the story, Esther takes her life in her hands and she goes to the king and says, Please come to a feast. I want to give to you, for you and Haman. She didn't ask him for anything. She says, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to do for you. They come to the feast. And he says at the feast, what do you want from me? Esther says, tomorrow, come again to a feast. And tomorrow I'll tell you. So a second feast is arranged. But in the meantime, Mordecai, the, the day between Mordecai, see, or, uh, uh, Haman, these are... You keep all these names straight. There will be a test after church. All right, so Haman sees Mordecai. He refuses to bow, and it, it just sends him into his final rage. So he decides to erect a gallows. Now, this was not a gallows where they would put a noose and hang the person. It was a killing stake. 
And these were long poles with a sharpened edge, and they would impale. It's very gruesome. Uh, it, was a pre- it was a precursor to crucifixion. They would impale the person on him and hoist them up into the sky and let everybody see, this is what happens if you betray the king. Very cruel. And yet, he erects this, and then, so he plans, Mordecai, or uh, Haman, to ask the king the next day at the second banquet, I want to put Mordecai on this stake. But the whole story flips, and as we just read, we find out how God is going to redeem his people when it appears that he's completely absent, that he's not even there, just through the ordinary events. No miracles, no prayers, no, no nothing. Just God with his people working through ordinary means to see that you and I and everyone who belongs to him is safe, that nothing can touch us. So let's look at three things this morning. I, I think you're going to love this because this is how Esther is a picture of Palm Sunday and the entrance of the great king. Behind this story is another story, a story of the Garden of Eden. I won't go through the whole thing. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, sinned against God and they were expelled from the garden out the east side of Eden, which was in the direction of Persia. Now, Persia came much later, but these geographical and meteorological storms and things were, were embedded in their thinking. And so they told these stories, they're rich and beautiful, but sometimes modern, us moderns, we need to understand what's going on. But this is in the context of that expulsion of God's people out of Eden, out of the garden, into the wilderness, east, into Persia, Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees, into Babylon, which was also over there. And God said from the beginning, where are you? I will rescue you and I'll bring you back to the garden which represented his presence and place where he was. But there was a problem and biblical theologians have mulled this over and it's really brilliant when you read what the the biblical theologians have to say about this is that that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and an angel was in the the east side of Eden, with a flaming sword that was pointed in every direction. In other words, nobody's getting back in here at all unless you pass under this sword. The threat of death was there. In fact, in the narrative it says, we've got to kick them out of the garden in case they live forever. Death was the sentence by the great king to, his, to the people that had betrayed him, which includes all of us. So the way is barred. And here comes Jesus on Palm Sunday and he goes and rides a donkey into Jerusalem and Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the mountain of God, the temple on the top of the mountain, all of it represented the Garden of Eden. 
That's the way the architecture was. That's the way the whole thing was, was laid out to represent the garden. You want to be in God's presence, you've got to go back into the garden. And here's how you go. You pass under the sword. And the sword was laid on the, on the necks and on the throats of innocent animals in order to paint this picture. So what is the book of Esther saying to us? Look at these first few verses, 1 through 6. A second feast... Esther is there, the enemy of God. Haman represents the serpent. Was he a real person? Yes, but he represented all of the people and all of the things that afflict our lives. The conniving of Satan, the trickery of the serpent, the the ways that we ourselves, even in modern times, get entrapped by sin. And Esther the queen invites Haman to this second feast. And then she addresses the great king, Ahasuerus, who's, if you've been reading the story, you know, he's kind of a knucklehead. He's just not really, but he's still the king. And he still has the power of life and death. So she says to him, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish, my people for my request, for we have been sold, enslaved, my people. They are to be destroyed, listen to the language, destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If it was just merely being sold as a slave, you know, we would still stay alive. I wouldn't have bothered you with that, but we're going to be killed. And in that moment, she reveals her identity as a Jew. She had kept it secret up until this point. And she said, I am a Jew and they're going to kill me and my people. And the king, in almost staccato cadence in Hebrew, it's like this. Who is he? Where is he? Who dared do this? And she answers him the same way with that clipped staccato. A foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. And when the Jewish folks today celebrate Purim, which is the festival around this event, all the Jewish kids, they jump up and they boo him and they cheer. And it's a lot, they have a lot of fun because there's humor in the story that often escapes us as well. And besides, we're Christians and we're so serious about everything. The Bible can't possibly be funny. But if you're reading this and really getting a a look at what's going on, you, you, you would have cracked a smile. You would have said, boy, this is, this is going to really turn out bad for Mr. Haman. Who is he? Where is he? Who dared to do this? And so the queen, Esther, who is, understand this, the connections between Esther and Jesus Christ and redemption, God worked through all these people building up to the person and work of our Savior. So whether it was Moses or Noah or David the king or Deborah the judge, it wouldn't matter. Each time God delivered his people, he was painting a picture of his rescue in history. I will rescue you through different means, but I will rescue you. So the trajectory is toward a great rescue, a final consummate rescue. This being just one in a series to point us to that. And Esther plays it brilliantly. 
a foe, an enemy. She remains, look at what she does. She remains humble. She shows great wisdom and deference to the king. And yet, she is bold as a lion. She appeals to the king's interest. You know, king, Haman's, we're going to get destroyed, but this is going to cost you. You're not going to be able to recover the money, the loss of this whole population of people. And Xerxes understood that. I'm going to lose a population of people. Haman hadn't been completely honest with him when he described what he was going to do. I would have, wouldn't even have bothered you if it was just a matter of being sold into slavery, but they're going to kill and annihilate us. The alarm bells go off, but the key is that in that moment, she disclosed her identity to the king. He finally, after being married to her and and she was his queen, she had kept her identity quiet. No one knew that she was a Jew except her uncle, Mordecai. And who else? This is how the original audience would have understood that. Who else was hidden? Who else's identity was camouflaged and kept underneath the surface where you don't see who it is? God himself. Esther's identity is hidden. God's identity is hidden. There's no mention of him in this book. Then Esther takes her life in her hands and says to the king, I am one of my people. She identifies herself with the people of God at the risk of her life. Are you with me, everybody? No? Come in the fishbowl later. We can talk about it. But if you think about it, Esther, the way she's going to save her people is by saying, I'm with them, they're with me, we are in union together. We are the same. And that's how God rescues his people throughout the ages. Scholars say he, she unites herself with her people. My life, my fate, their life, their fate, same. And if you read your Old Testament, Moses did that. When God was going to destroy Israel out in the wilderness, you know, because they were so stiff-necked and rebellious, Moses steps in, he said, take my life instead. When David, when the angel of God, David did a census to number his military and count up all his army and make sure he was really strong, it enraged the Lord because he was doing exactly what he had been forbidden to do. And he's numbering his people so he can, can uh, have, have an idea of how great he is. And God says the angel of death, and David sees the angel of death with a sword drawn. Sword, Garden of Eden. That's where the Garden of Eden was, in Jerusalem. And you dare to break my laws and my, my, the spirit of my law? I'm going to slay the people in Jerusalem. And David said, no, take my life. Don't. He actually said, what harm have these sheep done? They're innocent. I, the shepherd, must die in their place. So there's this identity 
And this is something, this is a big deal now in our culture. You know, people want to identify what they are. I'm, I'm trans, I'm, I'm gay, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm an independent, I, you name it. We want a label and we want to identify and we like to get around people that are identified the same with us. And there's nothing wrong with that until it becomes your identity. And then there's everything wrong with it. Because our true identity, the true identity that Esther had to reveal was who she really was, and that was a Jew. A nobody from nowhere. Israel was just this little, still is just this little, never mind they have a big military, but this is a little country over here. Nobody bothers with them. They just take over anytime they want. She identifies with her people. She puts her life into their life. Look at 7 through 10. This is where the reversal starts. And this is something I want to just put out there. You can either take it or not. But I think that in this first reversal, we see, we see lots of them through the book, but in this first reversal at the end of the book where the redemption is going to be uh, pulled together, we are seeing nothing less if, you, if you've gotten the metaphors from the Old Testament, we are seeing nothing less than God crushing the head of the serpent, the ancient enemy of God. Next week, I'll, I'll pull it all, hopefully I can pull it all together, because next week we're going to look at, at, at how this plays out, which is a picture of Easter. Purim, Easter, and Passover. It's, it's just remarkable. The serpent's head gets crushed. Look at 7-2. The king arose. He went into his garden. He was mad. And Haman stays behind to beg for his life there. Now, there was a law, and this is actually a real, real laws from... Uh, we've, we've learned a lot of these things from archaeological Herodotus, the Greek uh, uh, historian, recorded a lot of these things. And one of the things he said, that in these harems, these royal harems of the ancient Near East kings, the rule was that a male could not get within seven paces, about 20 feet or so, uh, of a female of the court of the king. So not, can't get in within 20 feet of his concubines, can't get in within 20 feet of his, uh, his consorts, his wives, whoever he had. You, you had to stay back 20 feet. Well, that was a law, and the penalty was death. Haman is so distressed, he, thr- he, he not only goes right up to her. She's reclining on a couch, is what they all did in those, in those old days. They were on a, a very low couch, and they would eat with one arm on the couch and the other arm uh, feeding themselves. He throws himself on top of the queen. I was reading in the Targums, the, the rabbinical Targums, which are uh, uh, commentaries of this. The rabbis said, their commentary about this was that Haman leaped up in terror and he starts begging for his life. And the king is in the garden, but he's coming this way. He's making his way back and right at the perfect moment, Gabriel the angel shoved him so that he fell onto the couch. Now that's, that's how they were reading. They, they, they had so much fun with the book of Esther that in 
the prison camps of Nazi Germany, they would not let them read the book of Esther because the Germans knew exactly who they were in this story. And so, thankfully, there were rabbis in the camps who had the book of Esther memorized and they would recite it and they would celebrate Purim in the camps as well, historically well attested. So whether Gabriel actually shoved him or not, this is the way they took this book. God is there and the angel shoves Haman and now he's going to die and the kids all jump up and yay, hooray. And uh, you know, it just... The man, listen to what one commentator said, I love this. The man who became so enraged that Mordecai would refuse to bow is now bowing at the feet of a Jewish woman, begging for his life. The irony, it's so thick and the humor is so thick. Haman bows uh, before Esther. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because God said, I don't know how many times, trying to get my, uh, my page to go. Here it goes. Does this ever happen to you, Dawson? Where your page sticks? Does? Yeah. I'm sure it doesn't happen to anyone else. One of these days, the computer's going to go dead, and I'm going to be dead. Because I don't have a backup. I used to print a backup. But, yeah. The wicked conceive evil. This is from uh, the book of Psalms. There's a whole bunch of these in Psalms and Proverbs. But listen to the, the idea of reversal. You see, Christianity is all about reversal. I once was lost, but now, what? I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was a leper. I was unclean, but now I am clean. I once was dead in my trespass and sin. I am now alive in Jesus Christ. You see the pattern. Where are you? Sets up this cosmic reversal that everything in Christianity, everything in ancient Jewish theology, Hebrew theology was all about God reversing the fortunes of the people that he loved. And why? Because he loved them for no other reason. Not because they deserved it, not because they earned it. These people are not, there's nobody to be admired in these stories. Even Esther and Mordecai are a little sketchy. So what you're seeing is God coming into our nowhere, our nobodiness, the absence of God, the emptiness, when we're saying, where are you, O Lord? There He is, in the normal, in the mundane, in the, just the ordinary overturning and the greatest reversal of fortune that we have ever seen was the Lord Jesus Christ getting on a donkey and boldly striding in on the back of that donkey into Jerusalem, back into the garden, passing under the sword, as theologians have said, because it was going to cost him his life to pass under the sword, to go back to the garden, to go back to the temple, to appear there. It was going to cost him. The serpent is crushed. In this very verse, we see Esther very shrewdly construct his doom as any redeemer of God's elect would have done. 
Going back to Noah, Moses, the judges, the, the kings, Saul, David, unit, they were charged with protecting God's people. And they failed and failed because they could not pass under the sword. And when Mary was told she was going to have a baby and that he would be this great redeemer, she sang this beautiful song and listen to what she says. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud. Think serpent, think Haman, think Pharaoh, think all these characters in the Bible that were bent on evil. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty and brought down princes, exalted the humble, filled the hungry, and sent the rich away empty. Do you see the pattern? This is repeated over... I have a whole list of scriptures, but we're out of time. So how does the How does this... Reversal of fortune manifests, and I think we see a glimpse of it, but it's a stretch, so if you don't like it, you don't have to accept it, but I think, I think, that it, I think we're seeing something more. The serpent gets crushed with Haman's uh, death sentence, but then look at verses 8, 1, and 2. That day, Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, which meant all his property, and... All his people, everybody that was part of Haman's group gave to Queen Esther. She could do whatever she wants. Well, she orders their annihilation, uh, which is what King Saul should have done uh, 400 years before and didn't. That's a whole nother, whole nother story. But she does it. She brings an end to God's end. She crushes the head of the serpent and then she takes all his stuff And she takes it to herself and she hands it to her uncle Mordecai. Look at what it says. Mordecai was revealed also as being a Jew, a cousin and guardian of Esther. And the king gives him the signet ring and sets Mordecai over his house. So let me, real quickly, I'll put it, I think some of you are tracking with me, you know, you know where we're going with this. And this is not just me. This is, this is the, the purest form of biblical exegesis and the purest form of what we call biblical theology, tracing the history of redemption through scripture that, that you will find. It's, it's remarkable. Look, how does our Lord overthrow the enemy? How does God do that in the book of Esther? Somebody has to put their life on the line. Esther does it. In chapter 4 she does it, and then she does it again in chapter 6 and 7 when she asks the king to come to a feast. She puts her life, unifies herself with her people. So when you think of Jesus and the plan of redemption and Palm Sunday, This was not just Jesus trying to get a lot of attention, although he did. The people were singing Hosanna and praising him and they were waving palm leaves because their king was coming. But what what did that mean to the king? What did it mean for the king to go into Jerusalem, which represented the Garden of Eden, to go to the temple, which was the Garden of Eden? That's where God's presence... How could you go in there? How could you present yourself there? 
Jesus knew what was going to happen. It was one week away from his execution. He knew that when he entered the city on that donkey, that was his death sentence. The sword of judgment was going to fall on somebody. And for you and me to make our way back into God's presence, somebody has to die. That is the story of your entire Bible, folks. The meta-narrative, the grand narrative. He gets on the donkey, he rides into the city, he strides into the temple, he throws the money changers out and he says, this is my father's house. And the first thing that comes into the religious people's mind is, ah, we got to kill him. Not, let's bow down. No, let's kill him. The sword. The book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, answers it perfectly. Listen. Because God's children are human beings. I don't know if I'll be able to read this, but I'm going to do my best. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. Listen. Only as a human being could he die. Only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. Will you sell my people? My people? I am them. They are me. My fate is wrapped up to them at the cost of my life. Tim Keller famously says that Esther and all of these other people in the Bible, they put their life, they they often will set their lives forward at the risk of their life. Jesus did not enter at the risk of his life. He entered at the cost of his life. David went down into the valley of death to to fight Goliath, but it was only a valley of battle. Jesus entered the valley of death and was killed. He died. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then, listen, then he could offer a sacrifice to that sword that would take away the sins of his people. The gates of of Eden, which represented God's presence, thrown open. In fact, if you've read the New Testament, you know that the veil of the temple had these angels over it, the cherubim with their flaming swords, because if you went back there without blood, you would die. They tied a rope around the leg of the high priest every year when he went in on the day of Potomac, because if he got struck, they had to get him out of there. Nobody else is going to go in and get him. Jesus went right in, and, the, and when he came out of the grave, that veil rent, and it will never be there again. Hallelujah. Never again. 
He would take away the sins of his people, himself, his body, his blood, what we're going to celebrate today. Why do we do this every week? Because this is our way. This is the way. Him. He didn't show us the way. He becomes the way. He gives us his life, his blood. Unbelievable. Living a perfect life of obedience, dying a perfect death on the cross, putting himself in our place, his fate, our fate taking the wrath, the punishment that was due for our misdeeds that exile us from the garden to Babylon, to Egypt, to Persia, to get us back to Jerusalem, to get us back into the temple, to get us back to God. He enters the city, he passes under the sword, the angel barring the way, and he dies the death that we deserve so we can be resurrected with Him next week and live with Him evermore in the garden of God. So what kind of a person will that make you? No fear. No cynicism. If you're a cynic, you put that stuff away. You cannot lose. You cannot miss. Well, what if I sin? He'll track you down like the hound of heaven. And he'll drag you back to God. You cannot, if you're one of his, he will not lift you alone. And if you're on your deathbed and you're shaking your hand in his face, he will just smother you with his grace and love. Does that mean you should do that? No. But what it does mean is that you and I can live in utter, complete hope of the resurrection of the life and the world to come. And in so doing, Become people that can go out into our neighborhood and our, you know, COVID's at the end. We're going to get out there. We're going to try to meet people and bring them to the body and blood of Jesus. So it's amazing. So will you trust him? Will you? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we can't even begin to thank you for what happened on this day so many thousand years ago. Um, Savior taking his life in his hands, coming before you and receiving death when he should have been set on a throne. He went to a cross and then a grave. But death could not hold him. And so we say, where is your sting, O death? Where is your victory, O grave? Jesus Christ is Lord and conquered all. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.